Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham. Glad that you're here. Uh, I want to start today with some morning declarations, if you will. So here we go. Because of our eyes up mindset and practice, I will choose to see people for who they are becoming and not be stuck on simply who they are currently. I will be a person who cares about people. The world will be different and better because I served Jesus today. Now, if you are not particularly a religious person or you used to be and then you kind of walked away from that, I am quite confident that you had a good reason to do so. And the reason that I'm confident that you had a good reason to do so is that you are a reasonable person. So today, I want to give you a reason to reconsider faith. Or more specifically, I want to give you a reason to reconsider Jesus. Now, what we've said throughout this series, we're back to this series, the Upside Down, is that when Jesus came, he came to uh, introduce something brand new. This is not an extension of something. This was not Judaism 2.0. He came to replace something and then to bring something absolutely brand new to the world and for the world. And the part that's indisputable, the part that you can verify, is against all odds, a band of Jewish blasphemers who were following a dead carpenter went into the streets of Jerusalem with no territory, no military, no sacred texts, and they had the audacity to announce to the world that the final sacrifice for sin had already been paid. Not just for Jewish people, but the final sacrifice for every person in the whole world for every generation. And that sacrifice sin had been made right outside the walls of Jerusalem. That doesn't stand out to us terribly much, but it was a huge deal when it was happening. They declared that animal sacrifice for every nation, for every generation, was no longer needed. This blew right up in the face of every Roman religion, every Greek religion, every Egyptian religion, and even the Jewish religion. There's a sense that he took, um, the whole world could now look at this group of Jesus followers and say to them, hey, who died and left you in charge? A question for which they actually had an answer. Now, the most amazing part, that this might even make you want to sit up straight, 347 years later, with no territory, with no authority, and with no military, in the year A.D. 380, Emperor Theodosius I delivered the Edict of Thessalonica, in which he declared that Christianity would be the sole authorized religion of the very empire that crucified Jesus and tried to crush his movement. Just unbelievable. The whole scenario was particularly unimaginable to John the Baptist, as you can imagine him standing uh, waist deep in the water. He had just finished baptizing someone and then he looks up and he kind of sees and then he introduces to the world for the very first time, please welcome the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And then, and then sure, enough right after, the, or not after that much time, pagan temples were being torn down and repurposed as Christian meeting places and all, all the way to pagan worship being outlawed. All because a group of people who declare that the final sacrifice for sin had been made outside the walls of Jerusalem, that nothing could shut them up. They, they were shoved in between the power of the temple and the power of the empire. And in the end, they not only won an empire, but in the end, their message reached all around the world. And that's what we continue to be about. That the world may know. But that's not really all for today, okay? Uh, sneaking ahead just a little bit there, I just get a little excited, and so I kind of like to paint the bigger picture. So last time we met, it's a while ago that we met about this, but last time we met, or previously on, the Upside Down, Jesus got baptized, right? We started there, and then he immediately left the riverside, and he made his way out into the wilderness for some temptation confrontation with the Satan. Jesus uh, then gathered a few followers. That's when we met Peter, and then we met uh, Andrew and James and John. And he was uh, getting around to different towns in the areas, and he was teaching in their synagogues. And the people were, were just praising him for being a great teacher. He was all the rage as a new rabbi. They viewed Jesus as a prophet. They saw him as an extension of something old. A different version of stuff that they had always known. They did not yet see him as the beginning of something new. So we're going to jump into a passage here. It says, they were uh, all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. But Jesus had come to do far more than that. Jesus had come for a much broader audience. And so very early on in his teaching, Jesus begins to drop hints that something new was coming. And he was dropping hints that this new he was bringing was going to replace just about everything that was in place. And then what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it really uh, is it's, it's a big reveal of the new that he was unleashing on the world. And we call it the Sermon on the Mount. That would sort of like be the, the title of his uh, live tour album. That, that's not what he called it. That's what we call it. It's for our study. It's for breaking down the sections in Scripture. The New Testament scholars that we have now believe that the content of what we call the Sermon on the Mount is content that Jesus taught over and over and over again. It wasn't a one-event kind of thing. And maybe you never thought of it like this, but the, uh, the, uh, the events that we have, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospels, and you put them together chronologically, all of that stuff could have happened in about eight months, except for dated events like Passover and the festivals that are mentioned. So we know that in the time that Jesus is around and teaching, there's a whole lot more that Jesus did than was ever recorded. And that's why John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John, the gospel writer, wrote at the very end of his gospel, he said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. Now, when, when he says that, that's obviously hyperbole. 
But what he is trying to say is just like we might say, let me tell you that what that just was, that was just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's the sort of language that he's using there. This is a collection of highlights. These are snippets in the, in the life there. So that's why the New Testament scholars believe that the content of the Sermon on the Mount was something that was um, essential to Jesus. This was his, his, his brand kind of thing. And he would repeat this content kind of everywhere that he went in all those synagogues. So here's the fascinating thing. And this is the thing that we miss. It just zips by us. This content represented the upside down, not the kingdoms of this world worldview that Jesus constantly talked about. This content was so contrary to everything that these Jewish men and Jewish women had been taught that it was very difficult for them to get their minds around what Jesus was saying. Now, when we read it in the 21st century in an English Bible, we have no sense of the, the, the tension that those words brought, the controversy that was raging inside people and in the society. So I want to try and extrapolate some of that and surface some of that so that I can help to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable today and understand what they might have felt and lived through and thought in that time. So it begins like this. And many of you uh, will remember this stuff. I bet a bunch of you have even memorized uh, a number of these verses when you were younger. It starts with a uh, blessed, right? Blessed are you who are poor, which was even more ludicrous to say then than it is for us now. They had all been brought up with the mindset, the worldview that God blesses the rich. And if you are rich, then you've been blessed by God. That's what rich means because all the patriarchs were rich. Abraham was rich. Uh, uh, Isaac was rich. Jacob was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. So how can you say that God has special favor for the poor. Isn't it that the poor are out of favor with God? And that's what we've been taught our whole lives. That's what they had been taught their whole lives. So blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Or in Matthew, it would say yours is the kingdom of heaven. This was good news for the poor because they thought, they believed, they lived like they had been left out of the kingdom of God. And everything that follows in this message that we call the Sermon on the Mount, every time he gave it was so completely upside down and backwards to everything that they had been taught from childhood. He would say, uh, the meek would inherit. The merciful were blessed. The peacemakers, not the power brokers, were in God's favor. The battle was on against the systems the default systems of society that foster power and control. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There was a murmur in the crowd. There must have been a murmur, because blessed are those who are pure in heart. That's such an internal thing. And, and for our whole lives, what we've been taught is, blessed are the ceremonially clean. Blessed are the ceremonially pure. Those who have done the right washings, those who have... Um, uh, kept themselves from contaminated things, those who've stayed away from the Gentiles, those who've stayed out of the Gentile homes. And then Jesus said, no, things are changing. The pure in heart will have the ability to recognize, to see the activity of God. And then he blew their minds and he said, you, the Jewish people, those who follow me, Verse 13 here, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light 
of the world to which they thought, hey, wait a minute. We're not the salt of the earth or the light of the world. We've been taught to stay away from the world. We don't dress like the world. We don't eat like the world. We don't marry their daughters and their sons don't marry our daughters. We've been taught since childhood that we are to stay away from all things Gentile. Now, you're telling us that somehow that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world? 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. And they, they knew what others meant. They knew that he meant non-Jewish people. But why? We don't even like non-Jewish people. We don't want those others around. In fact, the reason that we're hoping for a Messiah is so that Messiah will come and get rid of all the others so that we can have our nation back. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And they thought, we don't care if others, the outsiders, glorify our God. We want the others, the outsiders, to fear our God, like in the good old days of Joshua, we want power and we want control. Like in the days of David, when they feared our king. Like in the days of Solomon, when we were a wealthy nation. And they thought to themselves, this all doesn't sound very messianic. This does not sound like Moses. This is, does not sound like the prophets. This is knew. And Jesus knew that they knew that it was new because he knows the hearts of people. And so he anticipated this and he says, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, so again, we got to hit pause here for just a moment. Uh, when you read the New Testament, like I hope you do, uh, this is big. All right? During the first century and all the preceding centuries, the Jewish people did not call their scripture the Bible. Okay? They didn't call them the Old Testament. Christians are the ones who started calling it the Old Testament. And that didn't happen until about A.D. 130. So way after all of this, Jewish people in the first century referred to their sacred scriptures as the law, and the prophets, which included all of the history, all of the uh, wisdom literature, all of the poetry, all of the stuff that we would consider and call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Covenant because it wasn't old. It was the current covenant. They didn't call, the old, call it the Old Testament because testament means covenant and it wasn't old. So Jesus, the Apostle Paul, everybody in this region during this time, they referred to what we call the Old Testament just as the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, your Bible. I've not come to destroy it. I've not come to edit it. Now, why would he say this? Why would he say that? Do not think that. The reason he said that is because all the things that he had said before that would lead them to think that that was exactly what he had come to do. 
I have not come to abolish them, but. You aren't imagining things, but. You aren't hearing things. Feel the tension in the words. The contrast between what you grew up hearing and what I'm saying, that contrast is real. Change is coming and I'm not adding to, I'm in fact replacing. I'm not here to change what you've been taught. I'm going to challenge you to abandon what you have been taught. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Law and the Prophets was an assignment. If that's what it was, Jesus said, I'm, I come to complete it. If the Old Covenant, if the Old Testament, if the Law and the Prophets was a math problem, Jesus said, I've come here to solve it. If the Old Covenant, if the Old Testament, if the Law and the Prophets was a jet, Jesus says, I'm here to land it. And eventually, I'm going to invite everyone, including the Jews, to disembark that the Law and the Prophets, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had an expiration date. Something was about to change. The Old Testament approach to life. The Old Testament way was going away. Verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. And so they all exhaled. Oh, God. Because I thought, until... What? This might be... The most overlooked word, the most overlooked preposition in the entire New Testament. The fact that the church has overlooked this for centuries, and I understand why. I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not being critical. It's just important for us to understand. But because we have overlooked this, the implications of what comes next, there's been just so much confusion. There has been so much legalism. There has been so much gracelessness. There has been so much faithlessness. And there's been so much loss of faith. The fact that you have not been taught what is on the other side of this preposition might be one of the reasons that you lost faith. That you walked away from faith. That you've been looking for the door to leave faith. Jesus said none of it's going to change. None of it's going to disappear until everything is accomplished. Until everything is in place. Until everything is finished. And then it will disappear, along with everything associated with it. And that was unimaginable. So Jesus, you're telling us that our whole understanding of God and our whole approach to God and Everything associated with our covenant with God and with the temple and with the sacrificial system, all of it, you're saying that all of that at some point is going to disappear? That's impossible. Forty years later, on August the 6th, A.D. 70, at the hands of Titus and the Roman 10th, legion, ancient Judaism went out of business, and it has never been practiced since. 
You can't practice it without a temple. More on that next episode. Please don't miss next week. Here's the point of all this. Here's the point that Jesus was eventually going to make. This is the point that the Apostle Paul would look back later on and try to explain to the rest of the Gentile world. That Jesus came to introduce something new to the world and for the world. And in order for that to happen, Jesus was born under God's covenant with Israel. He was born to obey the law that God had given to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. He was born under the law, but he came into the world under the law to fulfill it, to end it. And the good news for us, to replace it. And to replace it with something new and something better. To replace it with a covenant, not between God and a nation, but to replace it with a covenant between God and all of humanity. And all of his teaching and all of his parables were foreshadowing. Here it comes. Keep watching. Changes in the wind. Get ready. I'm not going to take an add on. I'm going to take out what is here and replace it with something new, something better, something broader, something for the whole world. In the early church, and when I say the early church, what I mean is the church after the resurrection, after the, the, the church launch party that the resurrection was. The early church had a difficult time making a clean break from all that came before. And we're going to see that 20 to 25 years later, after the resurrection, they're still struggling to get their heads around what he's saying. And the 21st century church, and the 20th century church, and the 19th century church, the 18th century church, all the way back, have struggled with this as well. And this is why for so many within the church, within this church, within the families that you're associated with, and so many other churches too, it has been difficult to maintain faith in the world in which you live. If there was any question in Jesus' audience that he had come to contrast himself with all that came before, he made it abundantly clear that they were not hearing things. They weren't misunderstanding. Six times in the message that we call Sermon on the Mount, as recorded by Matthew, six times he says something like this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you. Six times he repeats, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say, do not even hate. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, lust is a sin. You, you, you have heard it said that you can write your wife a certificate of divorce, but I say, not so fast. And over and over again, he pits himself against the law of Moses. And his audience is getting a little concerned, maybe like you're getting a little concerned. When, when you say that we have heard it said to the people long ago, when you say that, you're talking about Moses. Wait a second, you can't set yourself up against Moses. Who do you think you are? You can't replace the lawgiver, Moses. You can't replace the covenant giver, Moses. It was Moses who came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and about the 600 other 
commandments. It was Moses who said that our nation has a unique relationship and covenant with Almighty God. And now you are here and you are showing up and you are saying that somehow your law is better than His? That your law is to take the place of His? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And so Jesus wraps up with something so powerful, um, so simple, that we've been quoting it, we've been repeating it for more than 2,000 years. So he says, let me wrap it up for you, okay? Let me land this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. We, got, we, got, we went through a lot of stuff, a bunch of tricky stuff. I know we've covered a lot of territory. Let me make it really simple. Here's your takeaway. Verse 12, he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And this sums up, this wraps up, this is the bottom line of the law and the prophets. And we're going to look more at this again in the coming weeks, okay? So this is not done, but this is definitely foreshadowing a very big change. Something far less complicated, but something far more demanding. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The temple leaders, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these groups of people who didn't even get along amongst themselves, they found a common enemy in Jesus. And through the Gospels, we find them coming to Jesus and they're saying, the law says... The law says, the law says, or they say, Moses says, Moses says, and Moses says, and, well, Jesus, what about the temple? And, and one day, Matthew, he's recording this. I think Jesus has uh, sort of had enough, and he, and he kind of turns to those people, those religious leaders, and he says something. Now, when you read it again in your English Bible, it just, it just breathes right on by it. It's 2020. We don't even think about what it was like to hear this. But you need to believe me here. In the first century, what he said, this is a show stopper. This is a mic drop. This is a record scratch. Everything stops. Game changer, brain stretcher. This is the kind of thing that might have made people who are listening look at Jesus and say, I think, I think he's actually lost his mind. And he turns to them, I, and I just imagine that he has a grin. Not a mean grin, just a, a playful grin. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Ouch. Jesus, I think you had too much time fa fasting out in the desert, okay? Jesus, there is nothing that's greater than the temple. How could there be something greater than the temple? Have you seen the temple? Do you know what's inside the temple? There is nothing greater than the temple. People come from miles around. They come from other countries just to come and see our fabulous temple, the one that Herod rebuilt for us. Hold up, Jesus. If there's something greater than the temple, then we don't need the temple. Because the temple represents the presence of God. The temple represents the law. The temple represents reconciliation between God and the nation. The temple is where we house the Torah, the law. There is nothing greater than the temple. If there's something greater than the temple, then we don't need the temple any longer. To which I think Jesus would have smiled again. Just wait. Now, back up, okay? Is this important? 
Is this just Bible trivia, sort of nitpicking a word here and there? How is this important outside of a church building? Is this important to to, uh, 10th grade girls? Is this important to university freshmen? Is this important to 30-somethings who are trying to get established in life with a house, a spouse, and a job? Is this important to 60-plus people who are looking at retirement or looking back on what was? I say, yes. Let me tell you how important it is. It is important because once upon a time in our country, people took the Bible seriously. They didn't always read it, but they treated it with respect. They'd say, don't stack anything on top of the Bible. All of, at one time, it was viewed as God's word. And then the internet brought information to everyone. And now we have a generation of people who have access to so much misinformation about Christianity and about the Bible. We hear and we see that people are leaving the faith in droves. Teenagers, millennials, all mom and dad have for me when I come home is the Bible says, the Bible says. So once upon a time, when we were going, what we were going through here, maybe it really wasn't all that important. Maybe it wasn't significant enough to point out. But those days are long gone. And what Jesus said, and what the New Testament represents in history, and what it has represented in history for more than 2,000 years, that maybe, maybe we've missed because maybe we didn't feel like it was that important. That's more important now than ever. Now, if you're a Christian and you love your church and you've got church friends and everything is just churchy for you and uh, most of your friends are Christian, um, this point might not be targeted totally at you. But if you have kids or if you've got grandkids, that are growing up in school, or going to college, or going to university, or or if you care about your unchurched friends, your lost friends, if you're a person who grew up in church and you've lost faith, and everyone has to some degree once in a while, and maybe now you sit in the, the back row at church, or you listen to a podcast, or you watch a service or a sermon, something that just keeps drawing you back in. But you've got so many unanswered questions. Then what Jesus taught over and over, that he came to bring something new, it's really important. Because you see, you, in your life, you have probably heard it said that if the Bible says it, that settles it. And Jesus said that the worldview and the values from Exodus to Malachi had a shelf life, and they came to an end. Jesus came to fulfill them. Jesus came to land that plane. Jesus came to bring an end. Jesus is the one who himself on the cross said, it is finished. He came to introduce something brand new. And please make note, history proved him correct. Maybe maybe you have heard it said that there is no conflict between the Old and the New Testaments the Old and the New Covenants, Jesus said that they are irreconcilable. So he tore the curtain in two, ending one and initiating the new. This is so awkward to talk about, okay? Because I know that I'm going to be misunderstood and I know that I'm going to be misquoted and my heart is not going to come clear here. The Old Covenant and the Old Testament was a divinely created and divinely inspired cocoon. 
And the purpose of that divinely inspired, God-given cocoon was to release the love and the light of God into the world for the world. It was Israel's purpose from the very beginning. But once the light of the world, once the love of God has been revealed, the cocoon is something that we appreciate. It is something that is um, essential as a part of the story. We have so much to learn about the character of God, but it is to be moved on from in terms of its law. You have heard it said that the Bible is our guide for life. Jesus never said that. Of course, when Jesus spoke, there was no the Bible. There was just the law and the prophets. But Jesus did say something about who would be your guide for life. Here's what he said in John 14. Maybe you've heard this before. He said, look at me. Because I am the way. I am the truth. I am where you find life. This drove the Jewish religious leaders wild. He said, follow me. And in the end, he made this unmistakably clear. And we've missed this for years because it wasn't all that important to us then, but it is so important now and growing over the last 30 to 40 years, more important than ever. If you've grown up in church, then you have heard this so many times. Odds are really good that you will, uh, you'll say, oh yeah, I totally remember that. After he was crucified, after he was raised from the dead and was seen, he gathered with his followers and he gives them a farewell address. If you want to hear it, um, I want you to try and hear it with ears to listen as though this is someone who has been introduced to the idea that Jesus did not come to complete something, to continue something, but he came to replace something. Matthew 28 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. Remember that when he taught? And they were amazed because of his authority, because he spoke, taught with authority, and it was unlike anyone else. And when he went into the temple, do you remember when he went into the temple and he cleaned the court of the Gentiles in the temple? Jesus creates chaos, and he honors the Gentiles, and he cleans their section of the temple. He spoke, and he moved. And he behaved with an authority never seen before. And he stood on a hill that day with men and women who saw him crucified and have now seen him and interacted with him alive again. And he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when, when you are standing beside someone who you've seen die, and then you are standing beside him alive, and they say that they've got all authority. You are much more prone to believe that they have authority. All authority has been given to Jesus, not Moses, not the law, not the temple, not even the Ten Commandments. And as you might imagine, this rattled his audience, maybe like it's rattling you, except that they had seen him die. And now they're standing with him alive. So verse 19, he says, Therefore, since I am the embodiment of the authority of God, here's what I want you to do. Therefore, in light of this, this is going to be odd. This is going to get uncomfortable. This is going to be in contrast to everything you've been taught since you were little boys and little girls. And he treated the girls and the women as if they were really there. 
I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. I understand that in the old days you, you were taught to secure your borders and expel the foreigners. I know that's what you grew up thinking. I know you've been praying for a Messiah because you believe that means someone who will come and secure your borders and expel the foreigners. And I'm saying to you something that is new. Something new is happening. It's time for you to cross your borders and take the love of God to foreigners wherever you find them. And that you instruct them on what it means to follow me. And you do for them what John the Baptist did for me, what my disciples did for you. You are to baptize. Baptizing them in the name. You are to have them identify with me and my message. Baptizing them in the name of. And if you've been to church before, you know how this goes. You know how the phrase ends. It's just like, ba-da-ba-da-ba-da. But for the Jewish audience, someone was conspicuously missing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But no Moses and no prophets. If you were raised like me, you've heard it said that the Bible is our guide to life. You've heard that it was spelled out basic instructions before leaving earth. But Jesus said something very different. He said, baptize them. Verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything. In the Bible? No. In the law? No. In the Ten Commandments? No. You are to teach them. Do you know who them is? Them is you. Because eventually they would cross their borders. And eventually they would take this message all over the world that the world may know. And eventually this little band of persecuted nobodies would topple an empire. And they wouldn't do it with territory. And they wouldn't do it with military. They would do it all with the love of God and the light of life. Jesus. So teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And what was it that Jesus commanded again? You got to come back for the answer to that. But here's the point, and I'm done. Here's what I would like you to understand. A new era had begun. It was the end of something old, something important, something valuable. It was the end of something old, and something necessary. Jesus replaced everything that Moses and Solomon had put in place. And the reason for this is important, especially important for some of you, those who have lost faith, those of you who know folks who are losing faith, those of you who are beginning to doubt because of something that maybe you read in the Old Testament, because of something you were taught in school, because of something you discovered on the internet and it just confirmed all your suspicions. Here's what's extraordinarily good news. It means that Christianity can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. The story of Jesus does not become valuable. It does not need propping up by the old covenant. It is a standalone, brand new message to the entire world, and it stands straighter this way 
It stands more defensible this way, and it has stood the test of time. It stood the test of an empire as well. And if all of this is confusing to you, I can understand that. If it all feels a little bit wrong, feels like we're on the edge of dealing with a little bit of heresy, then you can understand and you can appreciate exactly how Jesus' first century followers felt when he began to take away the old and replace it with the something better. Because after all, Moses was their guy. And after all, the Bible is our book. So don't miss next week. Because this story is not done. We are not finished putting the pieces together. Don't stop now. Don't give up. Kind Father, I thank you for the, the love that you have showered upon us in the person of Jesus. I thank you for the way that you saw me. You saw us as valuable enough to come for, to rescue. Thank you for taking the time, the effort to send Jesus to bring a new covenant. He describes it as the new covenant in my blood. When he died on the cross, that was the blood that made the new covenant and sealed the end of the old covenant. And this new covenant had me in it. This new covenant had you in it. God, I pray that you would provide a peace and understanding of what you have done on our behalf. I pray that we would be able to absorb that to drink it in and live with confidence going forward, filled with the boldness, the hope, and the peace and love of Jesus Christ, that the world may know that God loves them and he sent his son, Jesus, to die for them, not because they're Jewish, but because they are his children. Thanks for the value that you ascribed to every person, regardless of their language, their nationality, or their gender. You raised the value of all of us by how you treated us. May we take that step forward as what we are about and treat others with the kindness the grace, the mercy, the truth, and the love of Jesus. Thanks for what you have done and what you are doing in us and through us.